coming to minister with you guys, minister, along, uh, minister to you and walk alongside of you more than going to see a professional football game. But it was interesting that this choice for two different things was presented. You can choose to go and be with teenagers on a weekend retreat up in Northern California, or you can go see your favorite sports team play in a really big game and uh, a really fun stadium to be at and with seats you'll probably never get again, <laughs> to be quite honest. And you have to make those choices. Now, we're confronted, each one of us, with unique choices and decisions in our lives. In this particular session, I want to throw out three areas of tension that exist in the life of every man. To recap some of the stuff that we've been over, we've really been diving into the book of Genesis and the creation narrative. And Adam is created as the first male, and Adam is given some specific tasks in the garden. Adam's given specifically three tasks. Adam's given the call to create, to cultivate, and to protect. So God puts Adam in the garden and says, cultivate it. Cultivate the ground. God puts Adam in the garden with Eve and says, create life, be fertile and multiply. And God says, you have dominion over the garden. You must protect it. These are the three areas where Adam is charged. Adam fails at all three. Adam is given the call to protect the garden. But as we recall in that creation narrative where Adam and Eve sin, they eat the fruit. When Eve eats the fruit, the text very clearly says, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam fails at his duty to protect Eve because she's engaging in this conversation about disobeying God's law, about breaking a relationship. This isn't trite dialogue. It's very serious. And Adam's just there, kind of like, that's huh, a talking snake. Adam's designed to cultivate the garden and to cultivate fruit within it, and he inadvertently winds up destroying it. And instead of creating and bringing life into the world, it's through Adam, St. Paul tells us, that sin and death enter the world. So we have this one example of a man, of Adam. But then there's a second example, and that's the example of Christ. St. Paul also says that Jesus is the new Adam, that Jesus comes to right the things that Adam broke, right the things that Adam did wrong. And so Jesus creates life through his death. Life and grace enter the world. Jesus cultivates people. He pours into disciples. His very actions bring life and cultivate life in the world. And Jesus protects his own. Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. Now we're presented with choices, each man here, every day. And you may not even realize them, but they come down to the very call of your masculinity. You are created to create, to cultivate, and to protect. When you live and when you carry out these three actions, your life, your purpose becomes clearly defined, makes sense. And as you go, my brothers, so too the world goes. Because we have a choice not to be creative. We have a choice to be destructive. We have a choice, instead of cultivating fruit, to cultivate weeds. And we have a choice that instead of protecting others, we can choose to simply be apathetic. And that's what I want to dive into, and I want to do it in a little bit 
different way. In a second, I'd like you to get into your small groups and to just sit in a circle with your small groups because what I'd rather do is to make this more of a dialogue and not like talk for 45 minutes and then have you discuss things in small group for 15 minutes. I'd like to throw out a couple of ideas and then I'd like to challenge you to really dig into those things with your group. So like I'll kind of talk for a little bit and then you'll, you guys will talk for a little bit and then I'll say a little bit more and then you guys will talk a little bit more. So we can cover specific points without needing to go over a lot of stuff in small group or, or missing anything. And what I want to challenge you with is to be authentic with the men in your group. To rely on one another, to share a little bit, to be open. Because the chances are good that if you're struggling with something, somebody else is. The chances are good if you have a question about something, somebody else does. And the chances are if you feel good about something or you've got an insight or you're like, oh, this really hit me and I think it's a really cool thing and I just got this neat insight, somebody else in your group needs to hear it. So if you could just take about 30 seconds, if you're not already in your small groups, to kind of get in your small groups, and you can kind of pre do that thing where you pre-circle up, you know, so you can still like look at me when I'm talking, but you're, you're also ready to like launch into conversation. We got about 10 more seconds to get into those groups. My gentlemen. All right. There's a man named Carl Stockton. You've probably never heard of Carl. Not a lot of people would have outside of the town where he lived, but Carl Stockton is a hero. And here's why Carl Stockton's a hero. Carl Stockton's out riding his bike one day. And as he's riding his bike, he passes a building that's burning. You, know, you see smoke. Now most people in this situation would call like 911, which he does. But then most people would say, oh, I don't know like, what I can do, or they might be paralyzed by it, or they might look for someone else who's a first responder or seems eager to run into a burning building. Without hesitation, Carl runs into the burning building and pulls out the two people that are inside. Tremendously heroic. When his friends and family were interviewed, how do you feel about knowing a hero? How do you feel about being related to this heroic guy? None of them said they were surprised that he did it. None of them were surprised that Carl ran into the building. In fact, some of them almost seemed like, why are you asking that question? It's, it's Carl. How does one do something so heroic? How does one get to that point? I think we all have an image in our mind, like we want to be heroes in a sense. We have somebody on our mind that maybe we look up to as a hero or we think, oh yeah, that person's a hero in my life. You know, in fact, I want to throw that out there maybe as your first question. And I'll give you like two minutes. So just quick. It doesn't, you don't have to go into like a long explanation. But like for you in your life, who, who's kind of a hero to you? Now, granted, there's one way you can answer this question if you really want to just disengage and be kind of a jerk to the rest of the people in your small group, which is to be like, Batman's my hero. 
He's got a cool belt. He's rich. And if you want to be like that guy, fine. But just to throw it out there, you're being kind of a jerk. And you're disengaging the question, and that's not okay. But who is a hero to you? Like, who is somebody who in your life is a hero? Take, like, just 90 seconds. You don't have to go into a long explanation, but just share with your group. For you, who's a heroic figure in your life? Go ahead and discuss that. Just, like, 90 seconds. Got about 45 more seconds. Like I said, you don't have to give like long explanations. You can just, who's the hero and, and move. All right, if, hopefully everybody gets to share. If they didn't, come back and like share that with your group later. I just wanted you to kind of get that out there to think a little bit about it. And now internally, what makes those people a hero? Like how did they get to that point? How does Carl get to the point of being a hero? And the people you've mentioned, how did they get to the point of being like a hero in your life? Or maybe there's a, they're a hero in a, a lot of people's lives. Yeah, I think it, at the core of each of us, we have this image of who we could be as a knight in shining armor, to use a cliche. That person that like when called upon, we would do the right thing, we'd step up and be a man of action, we'd stand up for the oppressed, we'd step in to save another, we'd do the right thing. But most of us actually wouldn't. Psychologically, in studies over and over again, when they have somebody on the, the street who passes out, like a, a person who's dressed up as an individual who's homeless, who just falls over repeatedly. People just pass him by or her by. There's a crowd mentality that somebody, you know, will do something. And honestly, if we're going to be serious with ourselves, most of us probably would wind up falling in that boat. But why? Why do we have this one image of what we would do if we were called upon, but... Rarely, maybe, do we ever actually become that person. It comes down to the first tension in our masculine identity. Do we cultivate fruit in our life, or do we cultivate weeds? Anybody here play baseball? Any baseball players? Used to? Perfect. If I were to take these baseball, it looks like we got about nine guys. We could feel the team. If I were to take these nine dudes who played baseball and put them over here, and then say, uh, I got a couple people who've never played baseball. One or two, like never really played. 
And I'm going to take these guys, there's about nine of them, and put them over here and say, all right, I actually have the equipment we need to play baseball and put these two teams against one another. If we're going to be honest, someone's going to lose pretty badly. <laughs> it's probably not going to be these guys. And why? Because they've practiced. They know the rules of the game. They've spent time practicing fundamentals. They've spent time practicing advanced techniques. They've done it. They've competed. They've engaged. And everybody over here hasn't. <laughs> yeah. There's a difference between these two. So I throw it out to you. Now, if you're one of those people that's like, you know what, if I ever saw one of my friends being uh, put down, if I ever saw like a woman being demeaned, if I ever saw somebody, you know, in a situation where I needed to step in and do something, ask yourself what you do on the daily. The sad truth is you and me are presented with hundreds of opportunities for little acts of heroism every single day. We're presented with all kinds of opportunities to cultivate virtue. Virtue is a disposition towards the good, and it's practiced. It's not something that just we lock into. And we don't think about like anything else in our life the way we think about heroic virtue. Like, you would be like, of course, like the team of people who don't play baseball is gonna lose. And yet we have this idea that, you know, just because I go to church on Sunday and like I kind of listen to the readings or because I went to the, you know, Echoes of Worth retreat, like when the time comes to respect another person's dignity, I'm totally going to do that. But I don't do it daily. Then we're fooling ourselves. And don't get into the whole like, oh, but I don't have opportunities. Of course you do. You just haven't chosen to see them. Now, Adam's given this task to cultivate the garden. Daily, he has an opportunity to go and to prune trees that need to be pruned to cultivate fruit. So I would throw this out to you. Where in your life are you cultivating fruit, good works, virtue? I don't know what that looks like for you individually, but in the little moments, maybe it starts in your mind. When your mind starts to wander and you, you kind of start to think about someone lustfully, do you stop yourself and say, no, I'm not going like, to engage in that right now. I'm not going to daydream about that. When you have a chance to put somebody down or like your friends are all you know, ganging up on somebody or demeaning somebody, or do you step in and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going like, to disengage. Or even I'm going to step in and say, like, I, I don't think we should be talking about this person that way. Your own speech, what do you say for a laugh? What do you say thinking that it's funny or off the cuff that you don't even really recognize the ramifications of where in your life can you do good things? It's as simple as that. Because nobody becomes a hero overnight. They have to practice it. And one day, brothers, you'll be called upon to do something great. But will you be ready? Now, nobody stays just in the middle, though. Here's the, the crazy thing. Nobody just is like neutral. You're either moving towards virtue and the good, or you're moving into sin towards the bad. You can't just be like in the middle. Everybody's kind of oscillating one way or the other. So the flip side is either you're cultivating fruit, like good works, good things in your life, or you're cultivating weeds. Your actions are pushing you one way or another. Just like nobody becomes a hero overnight, nobody becomes evil overnight. Nobody in the world is born evil. They become that way. Sure, maybe somebody has like a disposition or you could argue the psychology of that, I guess. But a person who becomes a murderer didn't one day just be like, I've lived a good life, a virtuous life. I'm going to kill somebody today. Maybe they were cruel to animals. Maybe they harbored a lot of anger. 
Maybe every time someone put them down, in their mind they imagined what it'd be like to get them back. Do you cultivate weeds in your life? And it can be as simple as, again, having the thought, the lustful thought that you're like, I'll just kind of like daydream about that for a minute. Or it could be the, well, you know, we can just push it a little bit further in the relationship, but not any further than that. Or is it the, I'm angry at somebody and so I'm going to find like a way to like, you know, I'm going to go key their car. I'm going to go like spread a rumor about them. I don't know. But the little things you do daily also push you towards what you cultivate in your life. Sin is progressive. And if we don't acknowledge it, it grows out of control. I don't know if you've ever been to Georgia. In southern Georgia, uh, in, in, in the mountains of Georgia, if you drive, it's very green. It's beautiful. And you wouldn't realize that everything you're seeing as you drive along the roads is actually one plant. It's a vine. And it's called kudzo. And kudzo is resistant to poison. In fact, if you put poison on it, it actually grows even more. And it's very green. Somebody put it there because they thought it would look beautiful on their house. It's like a vine. The problem is, is it's a parasite. It grows up around trees. It grows up over the trees. It eventually chokes out the sunlight that the trees need to survive, killing the trees below them. And all that you're left with is like these shells of dead trees covered with this vine. And the vine's foreign. It doesn't belong there. Somebody brought it there thinking it was beautiful, and, and it's, it's killing the wildlife there. The only way to really like deal with it is sometimes you have to cut it off of a tree, and you have to cut branches off of the tree. You almost sometimes kill the tree. You bring it down to nothing in order to let the tree live. One of the manliest, manliest thing, cliche manly things that I've ever done is taking a machete to cut kudzo off of a tree. And I was struck as I did it to like how many vines had grown up in my own life because I had put them there. I cultivated them. I fed them more poison, more poisonous like sin, and they just grew, and they were killing me to the point where I wasn't even able to bear fruit in my life because I was so overrun. So I want you to identify those two things, and I want to give you a couple minutes to discuss this in your group. And here's where you got to be honest. Where are there vines in your life? Where are you cultivating weeds? Where are your habits leading you into things that are destroying you? And maybe they're little things. And if you can catch the little things, my friends, they don't become big things. Maybe for some of you, they are big things. Maybe you're like, you know, like, honestly, my relationship is what is, is, is destroying me. I'm cultivating weeds in that relationship. Weeds of jealousy, weeds of sexual impurity, weeds of anger. And where are you cultivating good things in your life? Call that out too. Be like, you know what? Actually, I do stand up for people when they're oppressed. And like when there's an argument in school, like a pro-life argument or an argument for abortion, I like stand up to that. Call yourselves out on the good things. Where are you cultivating fruit, virtue, good things? And where are you cultivating weeds? And I give about five minutes to like walk through those things and discuss them with your group. But be honest. And then we'll come back and we'll look at the next area of tension.
The other thing I'll say is if your groups want to spread out a little bit so that you have some more privacy, feel free to do that. I'll, as I'm speaking, walk around the room so that you can still hear me um, when we talk. So if you want to give yourselves a little bit of room, please. All right, so like I said, I want you to come back to these conversations if you need to. Um, but I know that sometimes you'll have a conversation that goes long and sometimes you'll have one that goes short. So keep that, keep that in mind. That's the first tension. What do we cultivate in our lives? What are your habits? What are your dispositions? Habit turns into action. And as we practice daily, that is the person that we will be. And that's just reality. Second tension is this. Each one of us was made to be creative. And the distortion is we also have the the power to be incredibly destructive. Now, when we talk about being creative, man, you're inherently creative. And there's two aspects to that creativity. The first is that all, every person here uh, in the masculine form has the potential to create life. You are one part of the equation necessary for new life to come into the world. A, a female is the other equation that exists. Even scientifically, if you're like, well, I mean, like, not necessarily they can, you know, in, in labs, you need the DNA from one and the DNA from another. If we're going to be completely reductionistic, there's no point in going into that. The point is that your DNA, your biological material is necessary to bring about new life. That's how God intended it. That's how God made it. So you have an opportunity to be creative in creating life, but you're also creative just in general. I mean, look at, have you ever seen a man writing a song, building a building? My, my son, like I gave him some Duplo blocks. He's 18 months old. Uh, and within like two minutes, he had figured out how to put them together and build towers. And we build, we create, we innovate. And a lot of us feel good when we do this. We feel alive when we're creating something. If you're artistic, you feel alive when you're writing poetry or painting a picture or, or acting in a play or, or playing an instrument, when, when you're creating music, when you're creating art. If you're industrious, when you're building something, when you're working with your hands, there's a, an energy, a liveliness that comes through that. Made in the image and likeness of God, we reflect this in a unique way because God himself is creative, right? And I think sometimes God has a sense of humor in his creativity is a funny God in that Jesus, the son of God, is born to a carpenter, a man who builds things with his hands. We're inherently creative. And we can create beautiful things and we can create incredible things and through the gift of our sexuality, we can create life. But we can also be incredibly destructive. We build atom bombs, hydrogen bombs, fusion bombs, we say, can we build a bomb that could blow up more stuff? Can we build a bomb that could just kill people in an area, but like leave all the buildings and infrastructure intact? And wouldn't you know, that's a project that people have been working on. Can we, can we create something that would put people in bondage and slavery? We can be incredibly destructive with our creative powers as well. And this tension exists in each one of us. Even your words can be creative. Do you, do you recognize, I mean, just the power your words have, whether they're spoken out loud or whether they're uh, sent over the internet or whether they're tweeted at somebody or 
when I was in eighth grade, I was a, a, kind of a jerk. I was really struggling to find myself as like an eighth grader. And, and I wasn't popular in elementary school. At one point, I got like tied to a fence and left outside in Wisconsin. Um, and you know, and it's awful. Schools were a different time. Back then, uh, people would be fired for this now. But I like walked into my class. I'm a fifth grader, late, like 10 minutes late, because I was trying to like wiggle myself out of the fence and get untied. And my teacher was like, where were you? And I was like, they, I got tied up to a fence. She's like, please just sit down. You're late. So I grew up as a young man, and my, my idea of dignity and worth was like that you're nothing. And so I realized that maybe in being a good person and being a good kid wasn't the path that I needed to take because I was. I was like a teacher's pet, got really good grades in school, tried to be a good kid, tried to do the right thing. So I was like, maybe I'll just, instead of trying to be creative, I'll be destructive. And so I started to act out. I got in a lot of trouble. I had a desk in the in-school suspension room that I actually like carved my initials into. <laughs> My freshman year of high school, I got involved in a youth group and had kind of a conversion moment where I was like, this isn't the person I want to be. And on a retreat, very much like this one, I met a young girl named Tiffany. And Tiffany I went to my school. She kind of hung out on the margins, um, was just in a different group of people than I was. But we happened to be on the same retreat, and so we were walking to dinner on a night like tonight together and just talking and having a really good conversation. She goes, man, it's just so crazy like, that you and me are here talking with one another. I just would have never like, thought of it. I'm like, why? Like, you're so cool. You're really awesome. You're, just, you're fun. Like, why, why wouldn't like, we be friends? And she's like, because like, last year, like, you were making fun of me with like, a group of your friends. And like, you, just, you told me I was worthless, that I'd be better off and everybody would be better off if I just like, killed myself. Here's what horrifies me. When she said it, I had no recollection of that conversation. It's like it never happened in my mind. I don't remember saying it. I'm sure that I did. I'm sure I said it for a laugh. But those words just floated off my lips and out into the air. God creates the world with words. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Made in the image and likeness of God. Your words have power, too. You can create life with them. You can inspire your brothers. You can uphold them. You can inspire your sisters. You can encourage them. Your words have tremendous creative power. They can create life, hope, affirmation in a person, but they can also destroy. And what should horrify you is that you will not remember the most destructive things you say. Because they're jokes. Because they're funny. Because I just said it, I don't know. And yet, this tension exists where if I were to say, what's the meanest thing anybody's ever said to you? I bet you could tell me immediately. I bet you could tell me right now. I bet I could pass this microphone around and you could respond. How to use this gift? The gift of our words, the gift of our presence, the gift of, of our attitude. My wife was a uh, campus minister at a Catholic school. And she came home one day and was like, yeah, uh, a young lady had to get pulled out of school um, because during the course of the day, somebody tweeted about her hooking up with, with someone. And the rest of the day, I think it was like uh, the implication was that she had cheated on her boyfriend, but this one guy's friends just piled on tweeting like pictures of her that they had, you know, like drawn over in Snapchat and you know, with like slut, whore, all day, to the point where she left school. Because it was funny. 
I have to call your attention to this because it's epidemic. And it underscores a greater point. You have power that you don't realize you have with other people. And that's not the only area that we can be destructive. You've also been given the gift of, of your sexuality. And with that gift, if you're called to the sacrament of marriage, you can use that gift to bring forth life. Now, here's, the, here's the, the really crazy thing. As somebody who became a dad, when you look at, like, a child that you helped with God and your wife create, there's a really beautiful moment with that. You can say, wow, this is like, I create resources for a living. I write. I help design. I help with videos. But he's the greatest thing I've ever created. And I can't even take full credit for it. I get, like, not even a full third credit because God, like, breathed life into him, which is pretty awesome, I guess. But with that same gift, you can destroy. And here's the thing, brothers. I, if you're in a relationship with somebody and you're having sex with them or you're engaging in sexual activity, you're destroying that person and yourself. Now, you can rest, you're going to need to wrestle with that. And I'm going to throw it out there. But here's why. Because you're holding something back from them because you're not giving something holy to them. And because at the end of the day, if I were to say to you, it is a fact that doing that with that person is destructive. And you were able to empirically prove it was a fact. Like, yep, it is destructive. Would you be sad that you had to stop? Like, would a part of you be like, oh, but that sucks. And if you have that feeling, oh, that sucks that I got to stop, you're selfish. You're selfish because you want something for yourself. Because I've met people in marriages where literally they've been told, here's the thing, because of this condition, I got a couple friends who experienced this a while ago, if your wife gets pregnant this next year, it will kill her. Because she had like scar tissue, she had a, a, a very rare condition where essentially, if she were to get pregnant again, it would make her body so toxic, it would kill her. And so they said for the next year, she has to not get pregnant. Now your response might be, well that's easy, put her on birth control, like, you know, use protection. Those things aren't 100%. Would you be willing to play Russian roulette if you were that husband? Hey, baby, says it's 97% effective, 99% effective. So I've got a machine gun belt with one bullet in it and 99 empty slots. I'm going to point it at your face and pull the trigger. Nobody's going to do that because you don't even want to take like a one in a hundred chance with somebody you love. But here's the reality. They were able to, because they had practiced virtue, say, I don't want to do something that would be destructive. So what if you were put in the same scenario? I just kind of throw that out there. It's a thought experiment. With our sexuality, we can destroy people by using them. And we destroy people even if it's not necessarily a person involved. We've created a pornography industry that revolves around the exploitation of people. Now, this is, I understand that this is not necessarily everybody in the room, but statistically, it's about 90% of us. At some point, you've been exposed to pornography. If statistics are true and you're one of the averages, it's probably around the age of 10. It probably wasn't your fault. It was probably something that somebody showed to you. It probably wasn't something you sought out. I have a couple things to say along with that. One... When you were exposed to that, it probably awakened some sort of, of feeling and you were designed for that sort of like response. And that's not a bad thing. That's not something to be ashamed of, but you have to contextualize it, like that initial reaction. 
The challenge is that for some of us, it became something we consumed more frequently. I was exposed to pornography at age eight. And here's the thing that I lament and I pray for each one of you for, it was like a Playboy magazine. That was my first exposure to like nudity or pornography. You guys, maybe a lot of you in this room, my son, the first exposure to pornography will probably be something hard, more, far more violent, far more graphic, and far more disturbing. But what does that do to the people on the screen? It takes the gift of sexuality and distorts it to the point of destruction. And we've been tricked into being consumers of that. It is a weed that cultivates in so many people's life that it ends in their utter ruin, utter destruction, utter failure. And so I throw that out there because I think you need to call it out. At your core, you're probably like, man, I know that that's not a good thing. And I don't want to shame you with that. The truth is that's a battle that a lot of us are maybe fighting. That it's a tension that exists for a lot of us and, and we, we don't know exactly what to do. And the first step is to bring that out into the light because it's one way that your sexuality is being distorted to the point of destroying you. And I've seen countless, countless marriages destroyed by it. I've seen a lot of young men wrecked by it. And it doesn't have to be that way. You can be free from that. Any way that we misuse that gift of creation can ultimately be destructive. I want to invite Diego to come up and share a little bit about his story because the destruction doesn't have to be the end. There can be a great point of redemption and a great point of healing that takes place. And Diego's going to share a little bit about that. So if you would, uh, I know I've been talking through this weekend, but if you'd give Diego an opportunity just to listen and, and share a little bit of his story. Thank you. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a seat just so I'm, I'm at your guys' level, um, sort of-ish, right? Um, but, um, yeah, um, I was exposed to uh, porn, I was like 10, so statistic, I fell into it, right? Um, and it wasn't so much where like I was exposed to it um, by somebody else or something, um, I can't really say I can pinpoint it on anything uh, or any experience or any encounter with anybody uh, in particular. But it was, um, I guess, that, um, that concupiscence that we were talking about earlier, um, that temptation just sort of, um, that, was just, that was just there. Um, it was sort of, it was, I am about, it was about 11, 11 years ago. Um, so like when the internet was still sort of super slow, right? Um, I remember very specifically one moment um, in, in our house, we had like an extra bedroom that my parents used like as an office. Um, went on Google, typed in boobs. Um, and uh, I forget, the, the whole point that I was in there, I was doing homework and I don't, I don't know what I was searching, but eventually just went to, typed in boobs and um, and I, I just saw a whole bunch of, whole bunch of women. Um, and then later, it's sort of like, you know, I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is crazy. I've never seen this before. I don't know what this is. I mean, I've heard people joke about boobs at school, so this is what boobs are. Um, and later, as later years progress, you know, we got, you know, with, with anything sort of evolve, everything evolves, right, whether it's good or bad. Um, you know, that industry was evolving as well, and, 
and and I was watching it, be, it, it evolve because I was watching it. Um, so that happened through um, I guess middle school into into high school. When I got to high school, I had I've had such a twisted I guess distortion thought of what um, the female role is in relationships. So to the point where you know when I when I started ha getting into relationships um, with some girls, I was I'd expected sex, um, and I was 14 when I had lost my virginity, and just it was just just a thing um, that we did, and that was sort of what that relationship at 14 years old um, revolved around sneaking out, and and it and it didn't help that it was really convenient that she lived like two blocks away. So on a school night, on a weekend, whatever, sneak over and just, you know. Um, and it just, it, it went from relationship to relationship to relationship until I got to college to the point, and it was, and it was like, it, it, it doesn't help when you, you surround yourself with people who are sort of, um, encouraging it that still have yet to really realize um, how destructive it is. Um, when I got to college, I joined a fraternity, so that also didn't help. And part of one of the reasons why I joined this particular fraternity, um, it's uh, it was mostly like a uh, Latino-based, so it was like okay, well, you know, these guys look like me, sort of. Um, <laughs> yeah, brown. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, but the stereotypes were all the same. The parties, the drinking, the women, right? And one thing that I remember I didn't really get to do a lot of in high school was drinking. Um, so I was just like, oh, sick. I can go to a party, get blasted, get wasted, and then hook up with somebody. And that's just what I did. So every relationship that I had been in from high school in the first year and a half of college was sex. Um, I had a relationship about a year ago that ended, it ended about a year ago. Um, that was the most toxic thing that I could ever have experienced, not for me, but for her. I, I, had, I, had, I had let, let my exposure to porn and no actions and the complete mistreatment of her where I was just sort of on and off just egging her and you know just promising her things and just wasting a year and a half of her life and all we ever did I never took her out once all we ever did was sex and it came to a point where I, I didn't have like this huge like rock bottom conversion uh, where you know I, I hit the floor and and I, I saw I I found God that way. It was it came to me like during a shower actually. You know where we all mostly think uh, make huge life decisions in the shower like I do. I know we all do that. Right. Whether or not I'm gonna finish my uh, final project in the shower on time or not, right or whatever decisions you guys are making right now. Um, 
it was in that moment where I was just like, dude, what, what the hell are you? I was talking to myself, looking at the tiles in the wall, just talking to myself. Just, dude, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? This girl who says that she loves you, who's, who's, who's giving herself, you know, as, as I should be giving my, myself back to her, I, don't, I didn't have an emotional connection with her. I had a completely physical connection, but I, I was able to um, trick her, I guess, into thinking that I loved her if she had given me sex. And I, and I, I was appalled in that moment. I just, it was, it was, I don't, I, I can't I explain it in super detail, but it was just like a moment where I was just like, dude, what are you doing to her? What, why? She's, she's this, she's a sweet girl who just wants to be loved back. And all you're doing is taking her to bed. And I couldn't believe it, the monster that I had become. And I had to, you know, I, I, when I realized that, I, uh, I distanced myself and, I, and, 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 and I, I talked to her. I had a conversation with her. And I told her, you know, I, I didn't know what I was, what I was doing. I, I, my intent for this relationship was not the same as your intent. And I apologize, and I don't want to. I don't want to do this anymore to you. I I can't. It's not fair because I, I'm already feeling like I, I I can feel the destruction in myself. I don't I don't want to continue destroying you. And so I ended that relationship. And as as I was continuing, I was still sort of struggling with those same thoughts, even though I had, I, I realized what, what was wrong, I couldn't pin, I couldn't understand why. And uh, when I was introduced to the teachings of theology of the body, knowing that, learning and knowing that we were created um, to love completely, to be gifts, rather than just to be things, or to give whatever, think, things that look sweet and, and whatnot. So created to love, for love. The whole reason why we were created was for, was for love. And then to, to learn that we were created by love was, was something that hit me. That the reason we are all here was from love. And then that's when I was like, dang. I want I wanna I wanna be able to create from love as well and have that 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 person that I can say I, I truly, truly love. I don't wanna I don't wanna be in a relationship where I'm just using somebody. I want to I want to be with somebody. And that's that's something that I, I I uh, had realized, and um, now knowing this, living this, um, I am in a relationship right now. Um, it's a very beautiful one. We are very uh, just living uh, as 
best as we can together, right? Just sort of respecting each other. And it's a very different kind of relationship that I'm a lot more proud of and loving of than any other relationship I've been in. So, yeah. I'll uh, toss it back to, to Joel. The final attention that I want to throw out there, and then I invited Martin to, to lead us in prayer for a very specific reason, is the tension to protect or to be apathetic. The world doesn't fall apart because of evil men. People like Osama bin Laden, groups like ISIS, Hitler, they're easily opposed because they're easily identified. They're an evil person, they do evil things. You can rally, rally an army against them. The world falls apart because of apathetic men. People who say, I don't care. Someone else will do it. Someone else will step in. Someone else will take care of it. Adam's biggest failure was that he failed to protect his bride. He failed to protect the garden. Christ's salvation comes from the fact that he hung on a cross to protect us from the reality of sin. And this is the example we have. So I want you to look at these three things. Where do you cultivate fruit versus weed? Where do, you, where do you create life in your life through, through words, through actions, through service? And how do you protect the creative gift of your sexuality so it doesn't become something destructive? Used outside of its context, it's destructive. And then finally, when you are put to the test, will you choose apathy or will you stand? Will you stand in between the marginalized and the broken? Will you stand up for their dignity? When the choice comes to look at your significant other and say, this relationship isn't holy, it's not what it should be. And the best way for me to protect you and to protect me, to protect our dignity and worth, is to end it. I don't call it spade a spade, because I've been here. If you're in a relationship that's not going where it should be, your boundaries have been crossed, it's really hard to pull back. It's almost impossible without a break. Are you willing to be that man? says, I want to protect you and I want to protect me enough that I'll deal with the hurt so that you can be holy, so that you can be free. Or will you choose apathy? And you can. Millions of men do every day. Someone else will take care of it. I don't really care. It's not that big of a deal. That choice is yours. We have choices to make. Those are just a couple. They're big choices because they relate to who we are as men. God created you good. God created you to protect. God created you to bring life. God created you to cultivate something beautiful in this world. We're not idle like people standing by. We're agents of change. You specifically. So tonight, Martin's going to lead us in some closing worship. And the ladies aren't here because here's the thing. like Ladies a lot of times carry us in worship. We become apathetic. We're like, oh, she's singing loud. Let me know when we start clapping hands. I'm good at that. Mostly. I can mostly stay on beat. But now it's just us. And when men come together to worship and, and to sing in all of our sometimes off-key glory, 
there's something deep and rich about that. They're going to come down here and probably hear you. And they probably never heard it before. They probably never heard men in the church really pray that way. And it's inspiring because it reminds them that they're not alone, that they're not the only ones praying, that they're not the only ones trying to live a virtuous life, that we're here trying to. They want to fight for sanctity alongside of them. When men worship, the world changes. And so I want to challenge you with that. I challenge you to pray and be loud. I challenge you to, to honor God as, as your father. To not make this a moment for apathy, but a moment for great prayer. When men pray, Satan shivers. And so I invite you to stand. We're going to begin our prayer in the great sign, the sign that saves. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Water you turned into wine Open the eyes of the blind There's no one like you Unlike you None like you Into the dark singing and playing the guitar and the drums and like a keyboard that he's got back there all at the same time. But then we can like drift off and just start to sing words like, oh, we're just singing words. It's, it's pretty and it's nice. And, you know, like it's what we're doing right now. This, this, the thing about the words you just prayed, how deep that prayer is and the words you're about to pray. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God is exalted above high over any other. 
healer, awesome in power, our God. When you pray that prayer, you're affirming that God is above any other struggle, addiction, whatever in your life. God's, God's greater than your struggle. God's stronger than the bonds of sin that maybe you think bind you. God's higher and above the relationships that are broken in your life. And God can heal those relationships. God can heal those relationships and those wounds. God's greater than the broken relationship with your dad, with your mom. Stronger than the bonds of addiction. And when you pray these words, you put all of that garbage below it. You don't need to exalt God. God is exalted. You need to dethrone the things you think are better than. And so here's the thing. You can make this a time to check out or you can make this a time of powerful prayer. Because when you pray that, it's not just words on a screen. It's not just nice things coming from Martin. It's life-changing. And so would you be so bold as to pray it well? Because if God is with you, nothing will stand against you. We don't need more apathetic guys. We need people who stand for something. Would you be him? And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what can stand against? And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what can stand in if our God? everything that we've been about, everything that we've done in men's and women's sessions. You are great, Lord. Thank you for the, the gift of today. We pray that you'd continue to move powerfully tonight. Make this prayer through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome back, ladies. We were just worshiping the Almighty Lord and King. Not a big deal. <laughs>
please come on in and, uh, and have a seat.